Taking Stock on News Talk. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. Welcome back to Taking Stock on News Talk, and we're joined now by Rebecca Chung Wilkins from Bloomberg. Rebecca, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Who are China Evergrande? So they are the world's most indebted property developer, a massive uh, Chinese developer um, that has over the years sort of expanded its business into things like uh, new energy vehicles um, and selling these sort of so-called wealth management products. Yeah, so it's not just property they do. And I think they, they started out kind of doing other things even before they got into property. Yes, I mean, it really is in the sense of a, of a kind of true Chinese conglomerate. Um, and like some of the other kind of big conglomerates that we've seen in China, they expanded, uh, particularly when they had this sort of easy access to credit. So they borrowed quite a lot in the both the local domestic bond market and in uh, the offshore bond market. And of course, they have this sort of extensive network of loans and other credits with uh, financial institutions across China. Why are they in this mess? that they find themselves in at the moment? Well, so there's two parts to this. On the one hand, Chinese developers, um, along with Evergrande, have been under a lot of pressure this year because Beijing has been tightening on the amount of debt and the kind of excessive leverage in the property sector. And part of that has been allowing more firms to default, particularly in the property sector, where they've introduced these new metrics called the three red lines. So developers have already been under pressure. Um, For Evergrande itself, it looks like we're reaching this sort of liquidity liquidity crisis because um, they essentially are not making enough profits and they have borrowed enormous amounts of debt, much of which is now coming home to roost. Um, Although it is also important to say that the story of Evergrande over the last sort of 10 to 15 years has been kind of coming close to the brink, but always being able to save itself. So the kind of really interesting thing, I think, is looking now at Evergrande in this kind of policy context and looking at where what sort of Chinese authorities are prioritizing in their markets. You know, Evergrande is facing a kind of very different type of uh, landscape and a very different type of crisis this time around. Yeah, and the, the well, first of all, I should say the whole, the whole story of a property developer being over leveraged and getting into trouble. It's one that's very familiar to Irish listeners from the last crash. <laughs> but I want to ask you a bit more about this policy decision that, that Beijing took to, to crack down. Why did they do it first? And second, by what mechanism did they do it? So, yeah, so I think, I mean, the broader background to sort of the crackdown on the property sector is this idea of common prosperity, essentially ensuring that there is a more egalitarian distribution of wealth. And as part of that, they cited the sort of these three mountains, um, and that was sort of access to healthcare um, and to education and this third pool to property. So what they are keen to do is to prevent any kind of bubble appearing um, in, in Chinese property markets and also to ensure that essentially the middle class can continue to access and can continue to buy property. Um, and so that's sort of the, the background to why it is that, you know, probably, you know, Chinese authorities are so keen to kind of um, clamp down, as, as I say, on, on the sector. And the clamping down was what? Was it that they, they tighten up the access to credit? Uh, did they put price caps in? What, what exactly did they do? 
So the, 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 the sort of main thing they did were these three, the so-called so three red lines. And essentially there are three key debt metrics that um, developers had to meet, essentially showing that they were reducing the amount of leverage on their balance sheet and also that they were borrowing responsibly when it came to sort of tapping the offshore bond market in particular. Um, and actually developers have had quite some sort of success. We have seen that, um, you know, these firms have been able to reduce their balance sheet. However, there is this presiding question over you know whether that that is uh, a question of accounting of possibly moving things around on the balance sheet or if it really represents a kind of true uh, shedding of some of that leverage who are the creditors that are exposed to evergrande uh, so sort of two key groups when we think about kind of uh, ed ed Evergrande exposure and creditors. So on the one hand, we have the bond holders, of course, in the dollar bond market and the onshore bond market. Evergrande is about $20 billion uh, equivalent of, of bonds outstanding. Um, and the, the kind of interesting thing I think about Evergrande is it's Asia's biggest issuer of junk bonds. Um, and so Evergrande's dollar bonds, including this one sort of 2025 uh, uh, note, um, a note that matures in 2025, are some of the most widely traded and widely held notes in the world. Um, Chinese property bonds have long been sort of favourites of portfolio managers because they offer these very, very juicy yields, of course, obviously with certain risks. Um, so that's sort of who we're talking about. Everyone from kind of institutional investors and now more sort of distressed debt players are entering the scene. Um, that's kind of when it comes to the bond. On the other hand, we also see banks with enormous exposure to Evergrande. Um, they have lent sort of loans to Evergrande um, and anywhere from kind of the, the big major banks, but also some more local banks. Um, and uh, Chinese authorities have in fact already warned major lenders and major banks to Evergrande that they should not expect the interest payment on these loans that come due uh, uh, on September 20th. Yeah, that was the, the the next thing I wanted to ask you about. I, I think there, there are some who, some people are claiming they're, they're, they haven't received payments that are due already. Um, you see these stories of of ordinary punters with wealth, who have sort of wealth management products with these guys and are protesting outside the office. Yeah, I think the sort of wealth management aspect of this is really, really interesting. So Evergrande sold or Evergrande units have these wealth management products that were essentially sold to sort of mum and pop investors. So some of their employees, but also retail investors on the street. And I think that's what's prompted these protests. So, you know, people are really, really worried that they've essentially lost their money. Um, and we saw protests in, in Dongbei and uh, Shenyang uh, province um, in China. China, as well as in Shenzhen at the headquarters of Evergrande. Um, and I think this kind of risk of social unrest, that's what's really escalated the latest crisis at Evergrande. I mean, that's really, of course, what Beijing is really keen to avoid here. Our guest here on News Talk is Rebecca Chung-Wilkins from Bloomberg. One of the key issues, I suppose, Rebecca, is, is as you mentioned there, what is Beijing going to do? Because, and you've alluded to this earlier, they do seem to have been more willing of late to kind of say, look, if you get yourself into trouble, we're going to let you topple over. And that's just it. But when it comes to a player of this size, well, it's a different calculation then, isn't it? As you say, 
policymakers have been allowing more defaults, they have been allowing more failures. And what they're trying to do is remove this idea of moral hazard, remove this assumption that the state will always come in and save firms, i.e. allow investors to really reprice risk and take that risk on themselves. Of course, the problem with Evergrande is that there is a threat of systemic risk. Evergrande's complex network of its suppliers and contractors, all these other uh, firms that are depending, depending on it to build homes to sell homes plus all of the banks that are involved plus all the bondholders and of course these retail investors it makes it you know what would potentially be one of the most complex ever restructurings um, and that's where the challenge comes in i think for policymakers. on the one hand they will want to do everything they can can to pre prevent systemic risk and also to prevent a sort of contagion effect across markets which essentially freezes out other property developers from being able to do business and being able to continue borrowing um, but on the other hand Hand, they will be very, very wary about stepping in and offering a firm like Evergrande, a private real estate developer that has expanded in this way, offering it a free pass and just offering a wholesale bailout. As, the, as of the time we're recording, it looks like Evergrande is going to try and do a debt restructuring. What do we know about that? Yes, it does look like we are inching towards a potential debt restructuring. So Evergrande itself has hired these two financial advisors. Um, and we also know that Chinese authorities have also hired some experts to help them dig into Evergrande's finances. And we're also finally now seeing bondholders also start engaging some legal and financial restructuring experts to potentially represent them in these sort of creditor committees. So it, it does look like that is sort of where we're heading towards. And I think from investor point of view, that's certainly what they're sort of looking and pricing in now is this idea of what kind of recovery rate or what type of health heck up they might see in a restructuring scenario. So do you expect then, given that, that some of these creditors are engaging with these experts, that sounds like they probably will be able to get something over the line and it mightn't come to the, the bailout uh, scenario that we've been talking about? It's a possibility, but given the kind of depth and scope of Evergrande's kind of debt woes across all of these other units, I mean, it's it's hard even to 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 understand the extent of, of Evergrande's um, uh, operations. I think it looks like that you know if Beijing really wants to prevent systemic risk, and particularly if it wants to prevent this sort of persistent social unrest, it will have to step in here and there, and it will have to intervene. I think. What's, what's still being debated is the scope and extent of Beijing's support and whether it will focus, for example, more on the kind of average Joe, so whether it will focus on those retail inv investors and mum and pops and the folks that have bought Evergrande properties, of course, that are yet to be completed, or whether it will focus on kind of, uh, you know, refocusing on injecting capital and supporting the sort of Evergrande key units like its property units. Yeah, and again, you're you're calling me back to the Irish situation in 08 on, where you have this kind of, uh, I suppose the, the the word to describe it is kind of jockeying, maybe. You have all these different classes of creditors. And a lot of people are saying, well, just born the bondholders. These are international speculators. And, you know, they took the risk and, uh, you know, they lost out and so be it. But I suppose the fear in Beijing might be, well, maybe then we're looking at a bit of a, drying up of foreign capital if we do that. 
I think you're, that's absolutely key. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, what we've seen in the Chinese high yield bond market, which is dominated by Chinese developers, yields there are, I mean, today at their highest since 2012, around 14%, which is pretty staggering. Um, that's before I started covering the Evergrande story. Um, so there really is a risk um, that, that um, other developers will not be able to sell their bonds or will be able to sell their bonds, but at these kind of astronomical borrowing costs, which of course is not sustainable. Um, so I think that really is a worry. I mean, on the one hand, of course, um, you know, authorities will be keen not to give uh, Evergrande the free pass. But on the other hand, it does need to make sure that all its other property firms can continue to do business in the meantime. Yeah. Um, property, of course, a massive driver of growth in the Chinese economy, you know, estimates 20 to 30 percent of, of the economy there. So do you think there could be others that are a bit overstretched? I mean, I know we've been talking about how the, these new rules have been brought in, but, um, you know, it can often be the case that if there's one player who's borrowing too much and, you know, spending money like water, there may be others doing it. Definitely. I, I mean, I think the Evergrande story in some ways is sort of playing out at, at a smaller scale at several other firms, um, partly because of this crackdown. So, I mean, this year we've seen devo defaults by uh, Chinese developers actually driving the record uh, levels of defaults again this year. Now, defaults, of course, generally are quite low, but it is this is kind of is a significant shift um, when you think about the makeup and the types of firms that tend to fail. Um, folks here certainly very worried about some of these weaker rated so single b uh, single b sort of rated chinese property firms um, as well as some of the smaller firms we we know that one big consideration about whether or not local governments step in is to do with the potential risk or fallout from a default um, and historically you know if if a developer doesn't have kind of deep connections to the local government and and wouldn't if default wouldn't threaten the local economy you know there is more of a willingness to allow these sort of failures or these selective failures here and there if we take a step back for a minute is there a problem with with high debt levels generally in china because i feel like i've been reading about this for for a few years Absolutely, yes. I think I think um, in many ways the China sort of growth story has been a debt story. Lots of its growth, and not just in property, but across across the board, has been sort of this debt fueled spending. Um, and when we think about some other very sort of high profile defaults or distressed cases, historically firms like H and A Group, um, you know, they also they also have kind of played out this similar this similar story where they've massively spent uh, after years on easy credit, but not necessarily in a sustainable way or in a way that kind of produces growth. Um, and I think the kind of interesting sidebar here is potentially to look at the um, soccer league, the football league in China. You know, many of China's most sort of indebted and over leveraged companies over the years have bought football teams. Now, that was partly to sort of ingratiate themselves with uh, local government. But when you look at the sort of Super League of, of Chinese football firms, it also looks a bit like a who's who of some kind of some of the firms in China that are really struggling, um, including Evergrande itself and including another developer, which actually uh, defaulted earlier this year. Well, yeah, I mean, there was a few years ago we were hearing all these stories about these big players leaving European teams and going to play in China. But that flow uh, certainly seems to have <laughs> dried up. The reason I, I just asked you about the high levels of debt is because obviously if the economy is sluggish, uh, 
as it seems to be by Chinese standards at the moment, well, then there could be a bit of a problem. Yeah, that I mean, that that is the thing that I think folks are most worried about, although saying that, you know, the Chinese authorities have proved over the years that they do have this sort of extraordinary capacity to inject capital um, as and when they've needed to. In fact, they, they kind of had quite a chunky injection of short term um, cash into the system today to sort of help ease those broader Evergrande concerns. And I think when we look at the sort of onshore market and we look at the domestic local credit market, and money markets, things have been relatively calm. The authorities and regulators have been able to keep quite a steady hand on things. It's more sort of in the kind of offshore space where we see uh, capital potentially drying up and we see this sort of potential spillover risk for other firms and for sort of, you know, portfolios across the globe. Okay, we leave it there. Rebecca Chung-Wilkins from Bloomberg. Thanks very much for being with us. (music) 